Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. <clears throat> now, most of you who have been coming since I was here a little over a year ago know by now, I usually don't have a sermon introduction. We usually kind of just jump into the text. But, but today I want to start with a conversation I had a little over a year ago with one of the local Amish men. Uh, we're simply small talk about a variety of things uh, that were going on in family life and so on. And then the conversation slowly started to drift or move uh, in God's providence toward the Bible, uh, toward Christ, uh, toward salvation, and toward the gospel. During the discussion, uh, the man just looked at me and, and, uh, and he said, um, do you believe in once saved, always saved? That's a real loaded question, isn't it? I wonder what you'd say to him. I, I wonder how you would have answered uh, this man. After talking a little more, I, I realized what he meant by the question. Whenever someone asks you a question like that, don't answer him immediately. Find out what he really means. Um, he knew of non-Amish people who I, I think you guys, we call them, or they call us Englishmen. He knew of many who had no interest in the Bible, no interest in church, no interest in spiritual things at all, who talked and lived in a manner that would be clearly not Christian, yet these Englishmen that he knew claimed to be Christians and are sure that they had a place in heaven because years earlier they attended a church or a youth rally and there they asked Jesus into their heart or they raised their hand at an invitation or they made some sort of profession of faith. And from his perspective, they didn't live as Christians at all, but they claimed they were saved forever because of this past one-time profession. Once saved, always saved. The Amish men didn't like that. And quite honestly, I, I, the way he explained it, I didn't either. See, there are many in the church whose eternal salvation seems to rest on a one-time profession. I prayed that prayer. I asked Jesus in my heart. I went forward. I signed the card. I, I did that. I did what I was asked to do. And sadly, pastors and leaders are the ones 
that teach oftentimes and guarantee and give the person confidence that upon that profession they are saved and they are saved eternally. I know of, another, I know of a pastor who ran into this uh, during some premarital counseling with a couple who had called the church and the, they wanted to get married in the particular church because they liked the church. And so because they liked the church, they wanted to be married by this particular pastor. Uh, when they came in for the first counseling session, because this pastor requires several counseling sessions, he didn't know them, so he just came out and asked, are you both Christians? And they said, yes, absolutely. They both had prayed to receive Jesus into their hearts. The bride-to-be was faithful for a couple years as a little girl when her family member took her to church on Sundays. The groom-to-be had prayed to receive Jesus in his heart, but had never been in a local church really in his life apart from that one time. They'd been living together for quite a while. They bought a house together. And the pastor asked them, do you have any guilt feelings over the fact that you're living as man and wife and you're not married? They said, no. And they're actually taken back at the very question. So as the pastor began to teach what takes place at salvation, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and makes you a new creature in Christ, that, that without the inward witness of the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin, it's very likely, very likely you're not truly Christians. And he told them that if they are truly Christians, then one of you needs to move out of the house like today, and you should stop having sex until your wedding date, effective immediately. After the second session, they decided to have someone else marry them. Was he too strong in challenging their belief that their prayer of profession of faith many years ago meant that they were Christians and saved forever? I don't think so. These two individuals just didn't understand salvation. Is the statement, once saved, always saved, true? Raise your hands, I'm just kidding. I just want to say from the very beginning, yes, yes, it is absolutely true. And we're so grateful it's true. But to understand the statement, we have to understand what it means to be saved. I, I told the Amishman that when someone comes to genuine faith in Christ for the rest of his earthly life. He is no longer under the wrath of God and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, yes it's true that once a person is truly born again, they are saved forever. But when a person is born again, the Spirit of God abides in him. He's a new creature in Christ. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And that person who's a new creature in Christ is now on a trajectory involved in a process to be more and more conformed in the image of the Lord Jesus until the day he dies. So the proof of genuine salvation is not to point back at that particular time that somebody made a verbal profession of faith as he walked an aisle. The proof of salvation is the continuation in our profession. That he's remained faithful to Christ and his word. So the Bible would question whether the individuals 
that this Amishman described ever understood salvation at all. Uh, turn your Bibles to John chapter 10 for a moment. This might be familiar to you, but if it's not, I want you to read it for yourself. We have tremendous promises from Scripture that our hope of heaven is absolutely sure. We have tremendous promises in Scripture that Jesus is going to keep us until the day of redemption, until we're final redemption, where we see Him face to face. In John 10, verse 27, the Lord Jesus states, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, aren't we grateful for that? Rick and I were talking about this earlier before the service, and he mentioned that John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. <laughs> you would lose it if you could. Thankful that God's the one that holds us. This is one of the anchors that we rest our hope. When you come to faith in Christ, we are possessed by Him. We are His, and nobody can snatch us out of His hand or the Father's hand, even ourselves. What I'm describing to you here is what we would call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I put in your bulletin this morning a, a small snippet of how the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, makes this statement on the perseverance of the saints, and I hope you'll look at that while I read it to you. Um, Westminster Confession makes this statement, and it's absolutely right on. They whom God hath accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end, and be eternally saved. Amen. Those who are in Christ never totally and finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere there in the end. That is such an encouragement to you and I as believers in a, in a, in a sin-cursed world. So yes, once saved, always saved. Uh, I have the, the note continues in your bulletin where Packer's statement is so good. I've quoted him, I think, every week now. And maybe that's because he's been passed away just a short time. Don't want to... We'll never, never uh, lose sight of all the things he's been so helpful with in the body of Christ to explain things. J.I. Packer declares, The doctrine declares, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that the regenerate are saved through persevering in faith and Christian living to the end. And that is God who keeps them persevering. That does not mean that all who ever possess or profess conversion will be saved. False professions are made. Short-term enthusiasts fall away. Many who say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will not be acknowledged. Only those who show themselves to be regenerate by pursuing heart holiness and true neighbor love as they pass through this world and are entitled to believe themselves secure in Christ. Persevering in faith and penitence not just in Christian formalism is the path to glory. You know, Packer's exclamation is so helpful as it pertains to my Amish friend. Not, not every profession is a true conversion. Some are what he calls short-term enthusiasts. And if they fall away, 
Yet the problem is many of those, because of their profession, still think they're true believers. So why did I begin today's sermon with this introduction? If you go back to Colossians chapter 1. I read from verse 15, but our attention this morning will be directly, we'll be directly looking at just the first part of verse 23. After hearing the story of salvation, we went over two weeks ago. In verses 21 and 22, remember we talked about the fact that verse 21 gives our condition that we were born into. Verse 22 gives the cure for the condition, and then verse 22 also gives us the condition after we're cured. Our condition is we're born sinners, alienated from God and hostile toward God and doing evil deeds against God. The cure for our condition is believing in and trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ to reconcile us to God. And our new condition, our new condition, after we're forgiven and made right with Him, is we receive all of the righteousness of Christ, and we're now holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father. And that holy transaction that takes place when Jesus takes on all of our sin and we receive all of His righteousness is amazing. This is why we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And as you move into verse 23, I want you to understand this is a continued thought. There's no period at the end of verse 22. There's a comma. And after there's a comma, there's a very small two-letter word that has some very, very large implications, doesn't it? Of course, I'm referring to the word if. The word if introduces a conditional clause. You could say on the condition that. You could say or in the event that. So listen to verse 23 again as Paul writes. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You know, the Colossians were just told that they were alienated and God reconciled them and they're holy and blameless before the Father. And, and there's that looming phrase that seems to indicate that there are conditions. And these conditions have to be met for you to be holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father. Do you see that? If indeed you continue in the faith. Well, what happens then if you don't continue in the faith? Well, Paul's really clear. You will not be presented holy. You will not be presented blameless. You will not be presented above reproach before the Father. Our presentation before the Father, our final glorification, our entrance into heaven and be accepted by God is contingent on continuing or abiding or remaining faithful to the Lord Jesus for the duration of our lives. Well, Rick, you just... You just said once saved, always saved. Is that really true? Do you believe that? Well, yes. But it kind of sounds like we're saying you can lose your salvation. What we're going to discover by the time we're done is that, though, that those who do not continue in the faith do not lose their salvation. They were never saved. Because you cannot lose something that you've never possessed. And this is such an important doctrine that, that, that I'm requiring everybody here to, to sign in and sign out because you have to come back next week because I can't say everything I want to say today. 
So next Sunday is, is required attendance. Of course, it's required every Sunday, but I'm just saying that for effect. And maybe even the week after. We may spend two more weeks on this because it's so important that we get this right. It's so important that we understand salvation. It's so important that we understand how this works. So I'm going to spend a few minutes explaining what the verse means, give some supporting passages, and then answer a final question. It's going to be more instructional than usual, so keep your thinking cap on. And this will open the door for, to dig a little deeper in the hope that, that we have that, that genuine salvation is a salvation that endures to the end. Once you are saved, you are always saved, or the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. In verse 23, the word continue means exactly what it means in English. Sometimes it's translated remain or abide. And what a person is remaining in is very specific. If indeed you continue in the faith. Well, the faith Paul is talking about here is the faith that he thanked God for back in chapter 1, verse 4. It's the faith that they had in Jesus Christ. You know, faith can be seen in at least three categories. We continue in the faith we have in Christ Jesus or continue to believe in the person of the work of Christ. We shouldn't waver from that. Secondly, it could be continue in your faithfulness to Christ, that you should continue living faithfully for Him. And then thirdly, continue in faithful Christian doctrine, not wavering at all from the truth about Christ. And we know this is true because Paul is being so meticulous throughout this letter about his presentation of who Christ is to this church, who many are beginning to drift. We've, we already have said that before. He's correcting their errant views of Christ. He, he's calling them away from their man-made religious traditions. He's calling them away from their human reasoning. He's calling them away from their views of, of the philosophy of the day and how they can work their way uh, in a workspace system to become sanctified. He, he's saying, if you continue in what you know and believe about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's faith in Christ and living for Christ faithfully and, and being faithful to the truth about Christ. All of these go hand in hand. Remember previously in chapter 1, they had heard, they had learned, and they understood the gospel. They understood the grace of God and truth. And their continuance or abiding in the faith would mean they continued believing in what they were originally taught. They were taught the fact they were hopelessly lost sinners. And Christ and Christ alone was the only Savior for their sin. Our continuous, the verse goes on to say, it should be stable and steadfast. Those two words actually go together. In the King James, the words are grounded and settled. In the NIV, they are established and firm. The first word, stable, has to do with a foundation. And it's a verb that shows an action that was completed in the past that has continuing and present results. Your faith in Christ has an action that took place in the past and has present results that continue on. And we'll take more time to explain this in the, in the next couple weeks. But if you wanted to put these in theological terms, we would say the past action that took place in our lives was our justification. That one-time event when we believe by faith in Christ substitutionary atoning death, and we are counted righteous by God because of the righteousness of Christ. And our ongoing or continual action would be, we'd use the word sanctification. Justification is when we become positionally righteous in God's eyes. And from that point on, we are viewed 
by God through the perfection of Christ. However, we all know, especially our wives and our family, we're not practically righteous yet. We still sin. We still have a sin nature. And for the rest of our lives, the sanctification process is God conforming us to become what we already are in Christ. We're becoming practically what he made us positionally. And this is part of continuing the faith. And we'll get into that more next week. But this is so important because when you become a believing Christian and you're born again and you're made new in Christ, this is when your life actually begins. I say often that Jesus authored our faith. And in a sense, your salvation is page one of your new autobiography. Your last page of your autobiography is your death. And in between page one and in between the last page, all of those middle pages is where you're continuing to grow, continuing to mature, continuing God's continuing to conform you to the image of his son. He's continuing to make you practically what you are positionally. This is just part of the sanctification process, part of your continuance in the faith. Your faith is an action that took place in the past and has continued results to this very day. Now the word settled has to do with with the strength that a believer possesses. It means to be firmly established in your opinions. It means unwavering. You're grounded on a foundation in Christ that is immovable. And your opinions about that foundation should be unwavering. And then finally the phrase, not shifting, it means not to be shaken from. You've been grounded on a foundation that you should never move from. I happen to read that in the city of Colossae, they actually had... Uh, it was kind of an earthquake center. There were several earthquakes there throughout the year, maybe a lot like California. And the word Paul used here for not shifting would have reminded them of the shifting that took place uh, whenever the earth rumbled underneath them. And the, the shifting of the earth creates chaos and fear and, and harm. And shifting from the hope of the gospel would do the exact same thing. Well, well what does all this mean? Well, just looking at this verse... And, and not cross-referencing to any other verses, Paul is saying that our entrance into heaven, our position before God, our right standing with Him, is contingent on remaining faithful to the foundation that we learned, understood, and trusted in when we heard and believed the gospel, when we understood the grace of God in truth. If we do not continue, we fall off the foundation, if we do not remain firmly established, if we shift away from the hope, if we shift away from the hope of God reconciling sinners through Christ and Christ alone, then we have no standing before God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 15. Many of you might be aware that this passage deals with the resurrection and... Uh, but before we ever get to the resurrection, I just want to read from verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It's a big if there, big if clause there too. 
You see, the part that they receive the gospel is related to their one-time event. It's related to that time they profess faith in Christ. But to show the importance of continuing in the faith, those two phrases are so critical in verse 2. One, by which you're being saved, and two, if you hold fast. Now, the ESV is the only Bible that I saw that translates that verb tense. If you have a King James or an NIV or something different, it probably says, by which you are saved. But the verb is continual. The ESV shows that by stating, by which you are being saved. And the idea of being saved does not mean that salvation comes in stages. We know salvation is instantaneous. But the one who is saved is the one who continues. The one who continues is the one who holds fast. And the one who holds fast is the one who endures. Uh, one more note I put in your bulletin from one commentator who wrote, who wrote that you could look at, and I'll read it for you as well. He writes, Paul knows that true Christian faith is the beginning of a life which, given by God, will be brought to completion by Him. He also knows that genuine faith is seen in patient and steadfast, day-to-day Christian living, while counterfeit faith, so hard in its early stages to distinguish from the real thing, withers and dies. From God's point of view, genuine faith is assured of continuing to the end. From the human point of view, Christians discover whether their faith is of the genuine sort only by patient perseverance encouraged by the Christian hope. That idea of counterfeit faith is actually something I think the parable of the sower brings out. A counterfeit faith is a look-alike. There, there are some who, who come to church and they're here for months, maybe even years, and they look like Christian believers, but they eventually wither and die. The important thing to remember is they didn't lose their salvation. It's very likely that they were never saved. Do you remember the parable of the sower? Uh, turn with me to Luke 8, and we'll glance at it quickly. Four soils. We have the, the wayside, or the hard soil, or the, or the seed that goes on the path. And those of you who farm, those of you who garden, can explain this a lot better than I can. Anybody that has gone out and sowed seeds in a field knows exactly what this means. You have the wayside, you have rocky soil, you have thorny soil, and you have good soil. <clears throat> Remember, Jesus told the disciples that the sower goes... And sow seeds, and the seeds fall on one of these four soils. The soil, as the, as the parable explains, are human hearts. And the seed is the word of God. And at first glance, three of the four soils, three of the four responses, seem like they might be Christians. We're in Luke 8, I'll read from verse 11 as Jesus explains the parable. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. 
As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Do you see that? So you have an evangelistic rally of some sort, and a preacher might have an altar call, and, and he, he calls people to come forward to accept Christ. And it's likely that the men and women represented by the rocky soil will come forward. And they're going to receive the word with joy. Those represented by the thorny soil will also receive the word. And over time, these men and women who appear to be believers who may have made a profession of faith, who may have walked in the faith for a little while, who may attend church, over time they will fall away, the scripture says, for various reasons, because of trials, because of testings, because of the pleasures of this life, because of the deceitfulness of riches. Did they lose their salvation? Everyone go like this. No, they did not lose their salvation. They were never saved. These are counterfeit believers. They, for a while, they look like Christians, but they're never truly saved. Look at Jesus said in verse 13. They believe, how long? For a while. I mean, think about that. They receive the word with joy. They believe for a while. They came to church excited. You remember them, they were greeters. They worked in the nursery. They were in the sound booth. They were excited about everything that went on. In fact, you may have sat next to them and you saw them sing at the top of their lungs. They were the first to volunteer for things. Exuberant. Seemed faithful. How long? Doesn't say. Months? Years? But as time goes on, they're not continuing the faith. Not stable, not steadfast. They've shifted from the hope of the gospel. Do you know anyone like that? If you do, it's likely they didn't lose their salvation. It's far more likely that they're never really converted believers. They were counterfeit, and they still need Christ to this very day. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Because if they'd been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they're not all of us. Those who are in Christ remain to the very, very end. You, you see, the word of God that fell in the hearts of the rocky and thorny soil would have professed faith in Christ. And years later, if you ask them, if you ask them if they were Christians, some of them, maybe like the couple that was in the premarital counseling, they might say, oh, oh yeah, I remember several years ago I, I went forward at that rally and I was in church for a while, but I just stopped going, but I, I know I'm going to heaven. This is such a sad and dangerous part of this teaching because it gives unsaved people a false hope of eternity. And unfortunately, it also gives believers a false hope sometimes for their loved ones. In a previous ministry, I remember meeting and knowing these 70, 75-year-old moms who had sons or daughters in their 50s and they were there when they saw them raise their hand at vacation Bible school when the guy said, how many of you want to go to heaven? Have you ever met a 10 or 12 year old who doesn't want to go to heaven? Everybody wants to go to heaven. Everyone wants to go to heaven. They all raised their hands. And, and they led them in a prayer. And from that moment, throughout the rest of their lives, those, some of those people, young people, 
Never darken a church door. Never serve Christ. Never stay in the faith. Or never stable. And yet these, these well-meaning moms and grandmas believe that their children or grandchildren were saved because of that long-time profession of faith when there's no, no fruits whatsoever of being a Christian. Far better that we're honest about those we know who no longer profess faith in Christ than believe a false hope that they're, that they're Christians because of a long-ago profession. It's true that God and God alone knows the heart. And God only, and, and God knows who's continuing and who's not. But as discerning Christians with an open Bible, there are things in Scripture where we can say, well, you know, he or she doesn't really exhibit the fruits of a Christian life. And we should pray for their salvation. And did you notice the good soil? They hear the word. They hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Do you see that? They hold it fast. The idea of patience is also endurance. They remain stable. They remain steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel they heard and believed. Beloved, those who are in Christ are kept. Those who are in Christ endure. Those who are in Christ remain. Those who are in Christ make it to the end. Those who are in Christ are in Christ permanently. Years ago, I met someone who was familiar with uh, the Billy Graham ministry. I actually went forward at a Billy Graham crusade when I was in seventh grade at, in the Oakland Coliseum where there's probably 50,000 people there. I believe now that was part of the process of drawing me to Christ. But I was not a born-again believer until I was a senior in high school. The person I knew who was familiar with how the crusades went told me that only 10% of the decisions made ever remain faithful. So however many people go forward, 10% of all the people that went forward remain faithful to the gospel. But this, and, and, and there's no doubt that God has used his word to convert many, many people through the voice of Billy Graham. But the sad part is, is the other 90% who would say that they they are accepted by God because they walked an aisle or they prayed a prayer when they watched the TV show or whatever it might be, and they were told told that their profession is what saves them, and now they're saved forever without any instruction about what salvation really is. Uh, Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. I apologize for all my rambling stories today, but we'll get into deeper next week. This is the worst abuse I've ever heard in my life of someone trying to get a profession of faith and considering them a Christian. And if if I I didn't tell you how I know this, you would tell me I'm lying. I'm just telling you right now. You would tell me I'm lying by what I'm about to tell you, but a very good friend told me he learned this in college at a a college. How to evangelize, okay? 1 Corinthians 12.3 says this. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I have a friend who was a missionary and a pastor. When he was in college, they taught him to evangelize strangers by getting them to say Jesus is Lord. Because you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So you could be talking to a stranger, drum up a conversation, and you could say, "Um, yeah, would you mind helping me for a minute? Can, Can you say Jesus is Lord? Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. You're in. 
That's how he was taught in college to evangelize. And he would go back and report back to how many people said that. And they would consider them not only Christian believers, but again, they believed in eternal security. You don't believe me, do you? You wouldn't have believed me until I heard it from a very good friend. And because of that once saved, always saved, that confession or that chant by a total stranger who just mouthed the words, now they're eternally secure. It's this teaching that destroys the church. It's this teaching that gives false hope. It's this teaching that hardens people to the true gospel. When you try to talk to someone who's been led to believe that this simple profession of faith secures their salvation for eternally without a genuine understanding of the gospel. It's as difficult as talking to your Catholic friends who believe that they're Christians because they're baptized as infants. It's very difficult, and it's sad. This is part of the reason why we're going to spend some extra time on this, because we want to understand the gospel. We want to understand what genuine salvation is. We want to believe it correctly for ourselves, so we can demonstrate it and give it to others without giving false hope. Now, let me answer one question that I think would be swirling around your head right now because it's swirling around my head. Some might be thinking this. I know someone who professed faith in Christ and left the faith for a while, but now he's back serving the Lord. So does this mean he was never saved? Maybe he was saved, then he lost his salvation and now he's back, or maybe he was never saved and now he's saved. What do we do with Christians who stumble and sin because we all find ourselves in those categories. Uh, Hebrews 12. Turn to Hebrews 12 as we come to a close. Hebrews chapter 12. When a person comes to genuine faith in Christ, he's brought into a new kingdom. You're brought into a new family. And God is now that person's father. As a child of God, God begins to treat you as his son or as his daughter. God does not have spoiled children. Which means that when you sin, when you stray, when you drift, when you go, begin to go down paths of unbelief, when you start going down paths of sinful behavior, just like a good and godly earthly father, God will discipline you to bring you back to himself. Discipline or chastisement is actually one of the proofs that someone might be a genuine Christian. Follow along as I begin in verse 5, Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beloved, if you're genuinely converted, if you're a new creature in Christ, if you've been adopted into the, God's family, God will not allow you, as we heard from the catechism earlier, to totally or finally fall away from the faith. He will bring circumstances into your life to bring you back to Him. Christians do sin. 
Some individuals sin in ways that we would consider are really vile. Some of us have committed vile sins as Christians. Remember King David committed adultery and murder. And God chastised him. God disciplined him. And God restored him to himself. We know Peter denied the Lord and God restored him. Sometimes God uses church discipline to bring believers back to, to himself. Like the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who was sleeping with his stepmother. Church discipline brought him back to the faith. Some may fall away for a time and live lives that for years and years, nobody would think they were a Christian believer. And we may not know all the things going on in their private life, but verse 6 tells us that God disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son, and it's only those who are without discipline that are illegitimate children. Those without discipline are not true sons and daughters. So one of the proofs of our salvation is the discipline the Lord gives us when we stray from the faith. I wonder if you've been there before. I'll tell you honestly, I have. And how thankful I am that when I drifted, when I, when I was so discouraged about, about so many things, and, and I stopped fellowshiping with God's people, that my Heavenly Father lovingly and graciously yet firmly brought circumstances into my life to discipline me and chastise me and humble me and really crush me in order for me to come back to Him. Why do we make it to the end? Why do we endure? Why do we, even when we sin, even when we stumble and bumble along the way, why even when we begin to go down paths of wrong teaching, how do we still get back on track? Well, we, we have a God who perseveres for us. We have a God who keeps us. We have a God who watches over us. We have a God who disciplines us. And we have a God who loves us. If you're a son, if you're a daughter, he will never leave you or forsake you. If you're in Christ this morning, your salvation is secure, and that will be proven by you enduring to the very end. And if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, then as I say on several Sundays, acknowledge your sin, turn to Christ, repent of your sin, and trust Him to save you. And then follow Him in baptism to demonstrate to the world that your new faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus will not let anything or anyone snatch us from his hand. And his Father, who's greater than all, nobody could snatch us from the Father's hand. He will be sure you make it to the end. He will not lose any of his sheep, any of his children. He will hold us fast.